that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom you have not preached, or whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will continue to do that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things in which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to to their works. And Father, we pray just for the grace of God and the power and help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue to worship you through just availing our heart and soul and mind and spirit to the word of God as an act of worship. Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us through what you've spoken, things that we need to hear to help us to increase in our knowledge of you and to serve and to love and live for you. So speak to us, Lord, by your Spirit's ministry. We ask together now expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the most crucial components, though often overlooked, to the spiritual life is what we would call discernment. Discernment is basically the ability to perceive things accurately, to be able to make proper judgments about things, and it is essential to staying on track spiritually and to safeguard ourselves particularly from error. And that becomes only more important as we move closer and closer to what the Bible refers to as these last days because deception will increase Darkness will continue, and knowing what is truly being directed by the Holy Spirit and is from God 
and is true and in alignment with the spirit of truth and the word of God and being able to also then distinguish what is not from God and what is being directed perhaps by another spirit, whether that be a human spirit or whether that even be from a demonic spirit and therefore is false and deceptive and is leading people in a wrong direction and taking people down a path of error, it is incredibly important to have spiritual discernment. And that is what we see in this section being addressed to a great degree, the critical importance of exercising spiritual discernment. Remember, in this last section of the book of Corinthians, Paul is seeking to protect the flock of Corinth, who he loved greatly. He saw himself to some degree like a a spiritual parental figure in their life, caring for his children. And just like any parent is incredibly protective over their own children and their welfare. Well, well, Paul has this heart spiritually. And so he's seeking in this last section to speak truth, to dismantle lying voices that were trying to kidnap God's children and abduct them spiritually and to pull them off in a direction that would be harmful to them. And they were trying to influence the church in wrong directions through deception. And these unhealthy people, Paul calls them here, deceitful workers, false apostles. He he doesn't mince words as he gets to the end of this. They were speaking things that were bringing about deception in an effort to purposely cut off the church from truth so that they could introduce more error and pull off the sheep away in different directions and one of the main ways they were doing that as we've been seeing is even trying to discredit paul through false and unjust criticisms because they knew that if they could separate in some way the sheep away from listening to paul as a loving and human shepherd in their life that they would have greater opportunity to exploit their vulnerability and take advantage of them and mislead them and this now forces paul as he's writing in this letter in the last section here, to kind of need to not only identify error, but what we also see him doing in a way like none of his other New Testament epistles is speaking very openly about his own life and his own ministry, and mainly to use his life and his ministry as an example of truth, as a measuring bar to further identify error. And you could tell that Paul's even very awkward in doing this as you see the language in these last few chapters there. But Paul knew that he wanted to help bring discernment. And in some ways, the best way to identify counterfeit money is just to know what a genuine bill is like. When somebody's a bank teller, they don't teach them how to recognize every single counterfeit money that's out there. They teach them to become incredibly familiar with a true and genuine bill. Because if you know the genuine, even if you don't know what it is, you can say, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you something about that. My baloney meter is saying that that's, there's something weird there. It just doesn't seem genuine. And so Paul here uses his own life, and you can tell it's awkward. Look with me in verse 1. Paul says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. The idea is I, I really feel like this is a little bit foolish, Paul's saying And indeed, you do bear with me. So Paul acknowledges he was not used to talking about himself or his work, but is only doing such because it best ensured a contrast to identify error. And that's why Paul's saying this. 
I feel kind of foolish, he says, to have to say some of these things about myself. But yet, nonetheless, he says, if you would bear with me, if this is the best thing I can do, then I'm going to attempt that. And, and you can tell from Paul's words here and looking at Paul's life and writings in the New Testament that Paul always sought to keep focus on the Lord. And to a degree where he honestly, purposely, it seemed, always was trying to so much point people to Jesus and do anything he could to keep people from pointing to him or looking to him or having attention upon him, he always tried to avoid attention upon himself so that attention could remain upon the Lord. And you can tell he feels very uncomfortable even having to write and say these very things. Yet, Paul, as I said, wants them to have a reference point for what is genuine and for what is true to measure and identify error. And because of his love for the sheep and their spiritual welfare, we find Paul here actually willing to do whatever he needed, even if it was hard. And even if it was difficult for him, he is a genuine true shepherd in love for the Lord and the flock, was willing to do what was difficult, awkward, hard, and uncomfortable for himself out of his primary concern for what would help the flock. And to me, this becomes a first indication in some ways already of the heart of a true spiritual leader. Of, of a genuine shepherd, that their primary goal is always doing whatever it requires in the best interests of the flock, not themselves. Shepherds care about what's in the best interests of the sheep and what would be best for the flock. And so they think that way and they act that way and they're, they're, they're thinking and, and the way they take into consideration everything they do or they don't do is is this in the best welfare of the flock? What would be best for the welfare of the flock? And no matter how hard it is for the shepherd personally, they always take that into consideration. And Paul's a great reflection of that as a true, genuine spiritual shepherd of the Lord. Paul goes on verse two to then say to them, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Notice, not jealous of you. I'm jealous for you with a godly, appropriate, divine jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you, he says, as a chaste virgin to Christ. So again, Paul here, using his ministry example, reveals to us here that the Holy Spirit, when he is directing ministry, when it is the Holy Spirit directing ministry, the first and foremost concern is always going to be, Jesus said, glorifying Christ and here we say when the Holy Spirit is directing ministry also that the foremost concern of the Spirit when he is directing ministry is connecting people to Jesus personally. When the Holy Spirit is directing ministry, the foremost concern of the Spirit is to connect people to Jesus personally. That's what Paul's describing here in verse 2 as the Spirit was using Paul to minister to God's people. Paul pictures himself kind of metaphorically here like a spiritual father who had betrothed, we might say today engaged or arranged a marriage. It's an, an older term. He says, I betrothed you like a spiritual father, you Corinthians, to our Lord Jesus Christ as your spiritual husband. Understand, in that culture, this was a very common picture that they would relate to. Weddings and marriages in that culture were typically always arranged. And fathers had, through their love and their wisdom and their care, complete control over the decision 
for their daughter's best welfare of exactly who their husband would be. And I like the idea, and I still operate that way. You can ask my two son-in-laws and the one who recently got engaged to my daughter. There's a complete control factor there that I was not given up. Because I invested two decades into that. And, and out of love and welfare for their children, a, a father was in control of the betrothal process, the engagement, the arrangement process, to oversee that whole process until the day that he delivered then ultimately his daughter over as a bride. And the betrothal or engagement process involved multiple things. The father's approval, the father's decision sometimes determining those things. There was a bride price that was paid, a dowry that was given to secure the commitment. I wouldn't mind bringing that back a little bit. My daughter gets a nice ring and I got the bill. But anyway, the father would arrange the marriage and then it was his job to present the daughter to the husband as the groom. And so Paul pictures this here as an analogy. And what he's doing is reminding us of really the spiritual metaphor that God uses in his word to describe the relationship between Jesus, our Lord, and the church, the body of Christ, you and I. That Jesus is like this loving groom pursuing a bride that he loves, that he wants to be in a lifelong intimate relationship with, to be unified with, and that we are like Jesus's bride, that we willingly accept his invitation. And because of the bride price that he's paid and the shedding of his blood on the cross, he's made a way to secure lifelong, intimate, loving relationship with us. And the Bible uses this beautiful picture of the relationship that God wants between Jesus as our groom and us as the bride. And notice Paul speaks as he talks about this here in our verse. He speaks about the Corinthian church. Look at the end of verse two. He says, I'm going to present you as a chaste virgin bride. A chaste virgin bride unto Jesus Christ. That is a bride that's never been defiled morally. That's the picture there. A chaste virgin bride. Certainly, that is a very shocking picture of the Corinthian church. If you think about what we know of, as we studied First and Second Corinthians, of the Corinthian church. Because certainly, we know that prior to getting saved... 1 Corinthians 6 describes what the lifestyles were like among many of the people who are now part of the church of Corinth. And they were living in some pretty wild, sinful practices. They were living in all types of lifestyles that were immoral. And Paul lists this you know, uh, kind of description of all these different sinful practices they were engaged in. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified. And you were saved and set apart by the Holy Spirit. So prior to coming to Jesus, uh, they wouldn't exactly be what you'd call a chaste virgin bride. They were pretty defiled morally, but the blood of Jesus Christ had cleansed them from all sin and given them that clean status once again. And even many in the Corinthian church, as we've seen in studying these letters, even after coming to Jesus, there were those even after they were saved within the church at Corinth, who had entered into gross sin and immorality. Paul's addressed a number of those sins. There was sexual immorality among Christians. They were suing one another. They were getting drunk and abusing. Even as Christians, they were doing these things. And yet Paul looks at them from a spiritual lens and he says, I'm presenting you to Jesus as a chaste 
virgin bride. Why? Because Paul understood what the Bible says, that the blood of Jesus Christ, that, that betrothal price, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Well, isn't that wonderful? How the Corinthians must have been amazed to hear Paul say that. It was part of that reality that Paul wanted them to grasp, that cleansing blood of Christ, to know that that's how they were viewed. And how wonderful, that's how we are viewed if our trust is in Christ, that he doesn't see us defiled from our past, whether it's before we came to the Lord, who we were, and, and, and he doesn't see us even in the failures and mistakes and stains we created, maybe even since we've been a Christian. But through the blood of Christ, he sees us as this pure, chaste virgin bride being presented to him as our groom. And it was part of the father's role, which Paul alludes to here, to not only present the bride, but to do everything he could to protect the bride, to make sure that that delivery happened ultimately to the groom. And so that's why, like a spiritual father here, Paul is saying in verse 2, that's why with this godly jealousy for you, I want to preserve you to present you to our Lord in the best way possible. Paul's in a sense saying, look, I promised and I connected you to Jesus initially. I betrothed you to him. And Paul says, you know what? I am committed to everything I can to help preserve that relationship between you and Jesus. And I don't want anything or anyone to interfere with your connection and your personal intimacy with the Lord. And so Paul was very jealous and protective over this. And it shows us, again, as I said, that a ministry led by God's Spirit is going to be about connecting people to Jesus relationally, as well as doing everything possible to keep people in healthy relationship with the Lord. That will be a focal point. The Spirit, as he works to people in ministry, wants to connect people to the Lord, and then he wants to keep people connected to the Lord and do whatever it takes to help people connected to Jesus and that bridegroom loving intimate relationship. That's why Paul says there in verse three, but I fear, see, this was his concern, anybody coming in and breaking up this relationship. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, referring to Genesis three, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity of that is in Christ. Your transition is a single-hearted devotion. That's the idea to Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, Paul's concern, he says, you may well put up with it. So notice Paul here identifies concern, we might say, of spiritual adultery happening between the Corinthians and the Lord Jesus as their husband and the devil trying to persuade people through different means to enter into the same mistake that Eve made all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the very first act of the devil, Genesis chapter 3, the first time we see the devil show up on the scene among humanity, the first time we hear the devil's voice, very good to pay attention to because then we know how he talks, what kind of things he says, what his methods of operation are. And Genesis 3 revealed that the first time the devil or Satan shows up on the scene, what is he doing? He's trying to disrupt relationship, love relationship, intimate relationship between what? Humanity and God. 
That's his very first intention. He comes on the scene and he tries to defile the relationship that exists between God and Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. And he uses deception to separate the spiritual relationship. That's why Paul says there in verse three, I'm fearful that somehow, even as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that the same may potentially happen to you. He's referring to what the devil did like a sneaky serpent as he arrived on the scene in Genesis three to deceive Eve's mind to get her thinking wrongly. The devil started, what did he do? He started dialoguing with, the, with Eve. You shall not surely die. Did God really say, and what does the devil do? As soon as he comes on the scene in a crafty way, he gets Eve to start thinking outside of ways that she should and outside of what God declared in his word. And the devil starts posing questions to her, trying to get her to question God, God's nature, to question the goodness of God. Oh, God's just holding back on you. He's, he's not good. He's just, he's, he's holding back. Why would you trust someone like that? And to get her to question the word of God. Did God, I mean, I know you might think God said that, but did God really say that? Or do you think he really meant exactly what he said? Maybe he kind of meant that, but maybe you could alter and have an, an exception for yourself. And he began to try and get her in corrupting her mind to think that something was corrupt about God or that God's word wasn't true and to start questioning God's word and God's will and God's plan. And Paul knows the devil still operates the exact same way that he did all the way back in the Garden of Eden, that his method of operation is still the same. In crafty ways, he tries to corrupt people's minds through subtle deception, through wrong thinking, and note the devil's attack. What is it? Paul alludes to it again here as he already has in prior verses. It is targeting people's minds. It is getting people to think wrongly. It's misleading how people think, deceiving people, getting people to question what God said, to question God's word, to question God's will, and to get people off track in their thinking so their perceptions are wrong. And their reasoning becomes distorted. And he, in a subtle way, uses those things to just slowly pull people away from intimate and proper and close relationship with the Lord Jesus. Notice here, the devil even exploits as well, as we see from Genesis 3, using the avenue of Eve rather than Adam taking spiritual leadership in regards to what they did as a family. Where was Adam? Maybe he was out playing golf. I don't know where he was. Adam seems detached and disconnected, and the devil smartly goes to Eve, sensing perhaps her desire for spirituality, and he starts dialoguing with Eve. And the Bible says that he deceives Eve. Adam just disregarded and disobeyed. He consciously disobeyed. But it seems he consciously disobeyed because his wife took the spiritual lead and said, well, I mean, it's okay. We, we, we can do this. And see, the devil knows another subtle way, craftily, to mislead families, to misguide spiritual situations, is to even exploit this idea of female spiritual leadership outside of God's design. God's design, not my design, God's design. For the family, for the church. And this is a subtle way, again, that the devil begins to introduce wrong ideas and inappropriate you know, corrupt ideas where things get, go off track for families 
and things go off track for the church. And, and the devil's exploiting this. And, and here, where the worst corruptions of, of all, really, of the mind is mentioned, and Paul says the worst corruption is that your minds may be corrupted, he says, verse 3, from what? The simplicity, your Bible may say single-hearted devotion that is in Christ. So what's the worst corruption of a human mind? To get people to lose connection to Jesus. To simply get people in a thinking pattern where they're doing things or not doing things or whatever it may be, where they start to lose that connection of just simple love relationship with Jesus. The thing that matters more than anything else, the main one single thing that God is concerned about, that we would love Christ, that we would trust Jesus Christ. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Just that singularity, that simplicity of just a a close walk and relationship with Jesus. The thing that when we first met the Lord and first accepted the Lord, that was what we knew it was all about, right? I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't know anything about the church, about the Bible and church practices. All I knew was that I was a rotten, broken mess. And Jesus was really wonderful, (laughs) And he died on the cross for my sins and he rose again in power and that he was willing to forgive me and let me have a relationship with him. And it was it was just all about the simplicity, was it not, of just being excited about Jesus. But then we mature. And then we start reading all those good Christian books. Five steps to the power of Christian life. And all of a sudden, whether it's through those things or this person's seminar, or legalistic ideas of what it means to be spiritual or not spiritual in different church settings. And all these other things begin to come into play, and somehow these things can start to actually interrupt and corrupt our minds from simplicity in just loving and living for Jesus and making it all about Jesus. In fact, remember, that corrupted the church that Jesus addressed in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, where they were doing some things, and Jesus said, that's great, but he says, I do have one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've lost that passionate love for me. You're doing all these other things under my banner, but you've left your first love, that betrothal, intimate love we once shared, Jesus said, and he said, please repent from that. And return back to just loving me and let the other things be secondary. Look, I would say this morning, beware of ideas and things, folks, that are presented to you that interfere with your simple connection to Jesus. With your simple walk and love relationship with him. Other things that become somehow more important spiritually, but yet they disconnect. Don't let anyone, anything deceive you in such a way whereby even if they sound spiritual, they make you lose connection. Only Jesus can save, and that's the only reason we're saved. That's the only reason we're getting into heaven. Only Jesus. Trust in Jesus and what Jesus did. Only Jesus can sustain us and help us as we follow him. And Paul identifies what begins to happen at times in verse 4 that they were putting up with, which he was shocked about. He says, For some are coming, do you notice? And he says, preaching to you, interesting, another Jesus. The idea is a Jesus that's not the biblical Jesus. The the, the Jesus who was miraculously conceived, 
who was virgin born, who was sinless, who died sacrificially on a cross and rose from the dead literally and is returning personally in power and glory, the Jesus of the Bible who is the savior for sin. And he says, but yet sadly, there are other versions of Jesus that seem to get presented at times, proclaimed. And we, we know this. I mean, look a little deeper, not that you need to, but if you want to be aware, at pseudo-Christian cults who talk about Jesus, but he's the half-brother of Lucifer, or he's an angelic spirit. And, and they talk about a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible, the, the eternal son of God, God who became a man and took upon himself a second nature in flesh. And there are cults that present a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. There's the liberal Jesus. Oh, the, the, the Jesus who's okay with certain sins that he was never okay with for centuries and centuries. But he's progressive now. He's the progressive Jesus. He's a diverse Jesus. You know, there's a church by, nearby our house. I drive by it quite often more than I would wish I had to. And right out front says progressive and diverse. And there's the homosexual rainbow right out front. And listen, I, my heart breaks for those struggling with homosexual tendencies. And it is a sin no different than any other sin, like heterosexual sin, like stealing, like any sin is sin. But how sad, how sad. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's a Jesus of your own making to accommodate liberally certain things that you would like to participate in. Or then, of course, we also have, it seems nowadays, the Jesus as well. That's sort of the social justice Jesus. And this Jesus, he is about, if you're a Jesus, he is about fixing problems in society because he's the social justice Jesus. Listen, the Jesus I read about in the Bible says, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's the Jesus of the Bible, a savior, the one who said, I'm the light of the world and whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Paul says, be careful. Don't put up with another Jesus. Take the Jesus who's authentic, the Jesus of the Bible. And he says, then there are also those who are receiving notice. He says, through ideas that were coming from a different spirit than the Holy Spirit, the ideas. And again, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4 that the Spirit of God speaks expressly saying that in the latter times, well, isn't that interesting? That's where we find ourselves. Some will depart from the faith, that is the authentic Christian faith. Why? Listen, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, that's intense a different spirit than the Holy Spirit under the banner of church and Christianity, but spirits that are, are unclean spirits. And he says doctrines that actually are demonically inspired to subtly, like the devil, lead people away in wrong directions. He also speaks of those who are promoting a message. He says there, verse four, that was actually a different gospel, a different gospel that is a different gospel than the biblical gospel of eternal salvation that Jesus first preached when he preached the kingdom of God is at hand and everyone after him had preached 
Their message is a different gospel. And sadly, so sad when some churches, for whatever reasons, begin to make their main message other things than the biblical gospel. And their banner and their message is this and that and everything else under the sun. And the main message, it seems, is this or that, but, but it, it kind of just tends to deviate from the biblical gospel, seeing people know Jesus and walk with Jesus. And Paul says the scarier thing of verse 4 is, look what he says at the end. He says, you may well put up with it. In other words, the, the more scary thing isn't that there are people promoting a different Jesus or different gospels or, or, or there are unclean spirits trying to guide people in wrong directions. Paul says the scarier thing is you at Corinth there in the church, you're putting up with it. This is what was shocked. Paul says the scarier thing to me is that you're being that naive spiritually. And this greatly concerned Paul, that proper spiritual discernment was not being used. There wasn't discretion, and it was affecting the body of Christ and the health of the church. Selective spiritual listening and a selective spiritual diet, folks, is essential to spiritual health. The word of God teaches us that we have to exercise discernment and not let the devil repeat the same pattern of deception that he did in the Garden of Eden. He's still trying it, but we can't put up with that and bear that. We have to exercise discernment so that minds aren't corrupted, so that the faith that was once for all handed over to the saints remains preserved in our generation as it has in other generations. We must stand and walk in truth and protect the bride of Christ from compromise in any form. And even as a wife, the Bible commands is to, to, to respect her husband. Well, we have a spiritual husband. His name's Jesus. And he's worthy of our respect and not allowing things to corrupt our marital relationship with him. And if we discern that the devil is ever using someone or something to interfere with our connection to Jesus... That is something that we cannot just dismiss. We can't allow that with godly jealousy. We have to stand against that and say, we're not going to put up with that. That's, that's going to defile the church. That's going to ruin the body of Christ because truth is essential. And Paul indicates further his concerns going on in verse 5. He says there, for I consider that I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent of apostles. Now, Paul here starts to use, you'll notice, resorting kind of to some spiritual sarcasm. And the reason Paul's kind of doing this is to awaken some more critical thinking skills. He's not trying to be critical. He's just trying to awaken some more critical thinking about these matters. And he uses sarcasm kind of for a shock value here. You'll see as we go on. One translation of this renders, I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these, he says, super apostles who teach such things. So Paul says, look, I apologize that, that I may not seem as important, but honestly, I don't consider myself inferior to these. He calls them eminent or super apostles. He says that you're now taking as your teachers. Interesting image that the Holy Spirit through Paul gives of unhealthy spiritual ministers paul's later is going to call them false apostles and deceitful workers that the word of god here refers to them as super apostles the idea is like spiritual superstars super celebrities in the body of christ they're super apostles 
And Paul here identifies them in this way of kind of being these well-known super celebrities, this kind of image of their popularity. And you can almost sense Paul saying, is that really what this is about? Is that really what matters? Spiritual celebrities, is that, are, are we Hollywood now? Are we trying to compete with the entertainment value of, of Hollywood out there and have our own spiritual superstars among the body of Christ and kind of these celebrity personalities? And look, in the Greek culture with the Greek philosophers, they had that. They would fill their auditoriums with people who could captivate crowds and who were persuasive and charismatic. And they would pay exorbitant fees to fill these auditoriums to just watch people just give an oration and to be amazed by that and perform, if you would, and be inspired. And Paul's saying, wait, wait a minute. I know that may happen in the world, but he's saying, is that what we do in the church? You can almost sense Paul saying, is this, is this how our Lord Jesus ministered? Was, was, was he like a superstar? Was he like a celebrity? You almost kind of sense Jesus was trying to dismiss popularity. <laughs> Didn't you? If you read the gospels, that's what I sense. A crowd would show up and Jesus would walk away. And rather than making it about this celebrity thing, he was much more humble in the way he just sought to minister to people. And so Paul's saying, I, this doesn't make sense. He goes on verse six to say, even though I am untrained in speech, he acknowledges, yet I'm not in knowledge, he says, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. So Paul's using his life again, notice as an example, and he openly admits right here in verse six in the word of God that he was not formally trained in oration skills and presentation of how to speak to crowds. But Paul says, yet the one thing I do rest in is I'm not lacking in knowledge, though. And Paul had a deep knowledge of the things of God and had met and experienced and received the gospel right from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul openly admits here, look, I, I realize that. He says, I admit I'm not formally trained how to be a persuasive speaker. And again, among the Greek culture, they apparently had, and as you can see, they had actual ways to be trained how to speak, to develop skills of oration, how to be able to be a persuasive communicator, how to captivate a crowd, again, how to fill these auditoriums and speak in a way where people would not only come, but they would pay to come and they would pack out auditoriums because someone was trained to be such a powerful and skillful presenter. And what scares me is I see now on some church websites and I talk to people among the body of Christ and they say, he's our main presenter. Presenter? I don't know. I mean, we're we creating people like the, the, you know, the little Geico lizard. Like we have people now who's like, he's, that's our face. He's our presenter. Last I checked, the Holy Spirit's the presenter, and people just stand there and try not to get in the way. And, and they had people who did this. They literally were trained. And Paul says, I admit, I, I have none of that training. I don't have great oratory skills. But Paul says, what I'm not lacking in and Paul's going to emphasize, which is the more important thing, is knowledge. Paul says, I, I know I don't lack in that department. Paul had tremendous spiritual knowledge of the gospel and of the word of God. And Paul said, what I know I can do is impart knowledge to people and deliver spiritual understanding. Because Paul's primary goal, as he was led by the spirit, was to instruct people, not to impress people. You know, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 3 that God declares 
I will give you shepherds after my heart, God says, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. God says, that's a shepherd after my heart, that they feed the flock. And Paul says, we've tried to make this reality clear to you that what matters most in spiritual health is not being entertained. It's being instructed and equipped with truth so that you can live with God and walk with God. And when the Holy Spirit is ministering, folks, I tell you, the Spirit of God is not concerned with impressing people. The Spirit of God is concerned with imparting truth to people. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he's the spirit of entertainment. No, he didn't say that. He's the spirit of truth. That's what the spirit wants to do, to give people truth. Because what did Jesus say? If people know the truth, the truth will set them free. It will be a liberating, helpful thing from things that would deceive or misguide them. And not being entertained by some super pastor that can excite us like a spiritual pep rally, that is not what the body of Christ needs. Again, any more than if you go back to high school sports, I mean, you can throw a great pep rally. You could throw a great pep rally and get everybody super excited and stirred up, but a pep rally is not going to help the football team succeed on the field. What's going to help the football team succeed on the grind out in the field is a good coach with a game plan who instructed them and prepared them and can guide them through the process so they become victorious and not defeated in the end. And the same is true spiritually. We don't just need spiritual pep rallies when we come together as the body of Christ. That, that's not going to help us as we go out on the field all week long and as life gets hard. We need not to be inspired or impressed. We need to be instructed by God, that God would help us how to live for him. Paul goes on to say in verse 7, did I commit sin? You can tell the sarcasm has come. Did I commit sin in humbling myself? that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, Paul says, I feel like, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I present, and when I was present, excuse me, with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked. The brethren who came from Macedonia, another area than where Corinth was, they supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you and so I will keep myself. So Paul reminds them how he chose to operate, particularly in his church planning style, as Paul was a missionary church planner, and he would travel around and establish churches, minister there temporarily, and then he would move on and establish another church. And Paul alludes to here his style of ministry as a church planner. We would go from area to area. Paul would receive financial support where appropriate and where it was given when people wanted to partner in his work. But Paul always sought to be low maintenance as much as possible as he was doing the work of the Lord. When he would go into a territory, if there was a need financially to sustain himself or his team, the Bible tells us they would work as tent makers. They would do what things were necessary to supply for their own needs, to provide for themselves so that they wouldn't unduly be a burden upon the people in the early stages of trying to plan a church and to minister to the people in those areas, nor certainly would they ever ask for certain fees or make demands. Now listen, in balance, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul clearly indicated there that he understood and was comfortable with the reality that those who preach the gospel should receive their living and sustenance from the gospel. 
And Paul had no problem with someone being sustained or receiving financial remuneration in an acceptable manner to free up and empower them. Paul mentions here receiving wages and funds from other Christians to empower him to do his missionary and church planting work. Yet Paul understood that as a right, but at times he wouldn't exercise that right. He would refrain from that right on occasion because he perhaps sensed it was the right thing to do in love. And maybe Paul sensed clearly it was the right thing to do in Corinth to not partake of that right among them because maybe there was enough corruption going on around them that Paul apparently didn't want to be misunderstood and wrongly perceived as others were. So Paul says here, you know, in light of that, I I chose not to receive there. I chose to do what I could to, to steer clear of that. And sadly, there were those who were flipping that around who were basically saying the reason why Paul doesn't charge fees like us great speakers do, he doesn't have anything good to say. He's just, he's not like one of us super apostles. And that's why he doesn't have anything worth saying. And they were trying to flip the whole thing around. And Paul here is being sarcastic. And that's why he says there, he says, oh, forgive me. Verse, he says, did I commit sin? I'm so sorry. He apologized. I'm so sorry I didn't charge you for telling you the everlasting gospel. Forgive me for that, he says. I'm so sorry for, for wronging you, for telling you freely what Jesus told you freely when I first came to town. He says, in fact, I feel like I did commit a crime. I think I robbed other churches because I was taking wages from them to minister freely to you. And he says, and when I was present with you and in need, so Paul did have needs at times. He says, I, I was a burden to no one. Paul says, I purposely chose not to burden anyone when I was there. Needs arose, but Paul says, when needs arose, I trusted the Lord and God always supplied. And Paul says, sometimes God would supply from people from another area, but it was always God's supply and not me burdening you. And I like this in Paul's heart. He represents again, this heart of a true gospel minister here, common sense discernment, Paul saying, is those who are not like me and unhealthy, they're gonna put the focus on money. They're going to have no problem being a burden upon you or asking or, or requesting or making their means of living because they just see you as a resource. And they're just looking to use the avenue of ministry to enrich themselves. And Paul says, use discernment. That's never a good thing. Paul says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting. He says, they're in the regions of Achaia. So he says, I'm not going to let anybody rob me of the opportunity to be proud of the fact that I'm doing what I believe God would want me to do, which is not to be a burden on you, but to serve you and to bless you for it's better to give, the Bible says, than to receive. And Paul says, is this because I don't love you? In other words, is that why I do this? Paul's gonna say, because I love you so much, that's why I'm getting awkward like this. Why I'm being vulnerable and addressing these things. He says, but what I do I will continue to do, notice that I might cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded as we are in all things which they boast. So why was Paul doing the things that he was doing? He says there to cut off opportunity from people shifting blame towards him, which he knew would then discredit his character and it would diminish his ability to be effective with people. And Paul here shows tremendous wisdom and love that he realizes that establishing respect and maintaining respect with people is what gives us the greatest avenue for them to be receptive to us. And Paul said, I don't want to lose your respect. 
So if I've got to take burdens on myself just to maintain respect with you, to love and minister to you, Paul said, your receptivity matters to me more than anything because Paul cared about them. And I'll tell you, when you see people who have no consideration for what's best for the welfare of the flock and they don't care about losing respect and then they try and regain it, losing respect and try and regain it and losing respect and regain it, those people don't care about people. They're just trying to do everything they can to just say one step ahead to keep having an avenue to do what they keep doing. And Paul said, I tried to cut off every opportunity to let respect be lost among you. And then Paul goes, man, right for the juggler. He says, verse 13, for such that are doing these things are false apostles, deceitful workers. Again, the word apostle means one sent out with authorization from a throne. And, and Paul says here, that they're false apostles transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. These people were operating under the banner of true apostles of Christ and true workers of God. And Paul says, they're apostles, he says, but they're not genuine apostles. They have an authorization, but it's a self-promoted authorization. It didn't come from Christ. And he says here, this authorization they've taken to be in leadership spiritually, he says, it's not Christ's authorization. They might have went out, but Paul says they weren't sent out, not from Jesus anyway, because Jesus wouldn't lead them to operate in those ways. He calls them here deceitful workers, that is working in ways, doing things that were deceptive and wrong. The idea is they were doing work under the banner of God's kingdom and ministry and spiritual practices, but their work was deceptive and wrong, and it was misguiding people. It wasn't helping people. It was misleading people. They weren't really interested in doing God's work and ministering to people. They were just doing whatever religious works they were doing to utilize people as their resource because they weren't really helping people spiritually. They weren't really ministering to people properly. They were presenting false doctrines as false teachers. And I tell you, the Bible repeatedly cautions us about these realities. Second Peter chapter two gives an entire chapter. I encourage you to familiarize yourself with it. An entire chapter, second Peter two, of how to recognize the, the nature, the character, the antics of those who are false teachers that will exist, the Bible says. Jesus said that beware of what wolves who come how? In sheep's clothing. Jesus said to beware of these things. Paul says here they're transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And look what he says, verse 14. No wonder, in other words, that's not a surprise, for Satan himself transforms himself, look what he says, into an angel of light. Now take note of that. Satan himself, the master deceiver. How does he show up? Well, if you look on a tuna can, he's got a little pitchfork and a pointy black goatee beard and a cape, right? Or cartoons. Yeah, <laughs> the devil. You know. If the devil represented himself in a scary, weird way, would anybody be deceived by him? No one would. Why? Because what would they do? They'd all run away. So the devil knows deception has to be very crafty. So the devil doesn't represent himself in scary, weird, obvious ways. He transforms himself into an angel of light, spiritual, supernatural, something that's alluring and beautiful and attractive that draws people in 
so that their guard goes down and then he can subtly deceive and misguide them. Take notice how the devil works, transforming himself, the Bible says, into an angel of light. Oh, an angel gave us this revelation. Don't know about that. But it was a beautiful angel. Might have been a beautiful angel. It also might be a very deceptive angel called Satan himself. And Paul says here, no wonder this is how the devil operates. Therefore, look how he concludes, it's no great thing. The idea is in like manner. If his ministers, I wish the Bible didn't say that Satan had ministers, but God said it, not me. If his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So notice the Bible says there are actually people doing spiritual work in church circles who are technically enemy plants like spies put in a foreign land to basically exploit and use their avenue of opportunity to advance the cause of the devil. That's crazy to deceive people and that the devil can listen. And whether such folks are doing this, let me be gracious, consciously or unconsciously, that Satan is using them as enemy plants, depositing them where they are, and the devil is working through them to further deceive and to destroy lives and to try and cause havoc to the kingdom of God. You know, if that does not create a shock value of a heavy dose of reality, I don't know what would. And Paul says the end of those who are doing these things, what things? Using the banner of Christ and Christianity to rape his bride, to kidnap God's children. He says the severity of the judgment that's going to come upon people for doing that is going to be intense, intense. You know, what is a takeaway from a passage like this? Well, let me give you two thoughts. Keep your spiritual life simple. Keep it about Jesus. And secondarily, let me say this. Use discernment and discernment begins with the word of God. And I tell you this this morning. If you, ladies and gentlemen, are not reading your Bible on a daily basis, you are offering the devil an avenue of deception in your life. If you are not reading your Bible daily, you are offering the devil an avenue of deception in your life. If you begin to disregard the body of Christ and the need to be with God's people and let the spirit of the Lord, you are offering the devil an avenue of deception in your life. 